You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And so, God, we ask that as we hear your word preached today, that you would cause us, by the strength of your spirit alone, to stand in the power of Christ alone. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our series through 1 Corinthians after our brief pause over Palm Sunday and Easter. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul starts to make a turn. He's been outlining the logic of the gospel throughout 1 Corinthians and now he goes to address a particular issue. And you know, for many of us non-vegetarians and non-vegans, if we're going to get a nice cut of meat, we have to head to that section of the supermarket or if we're being a little extra, we head to the butcher shop. But in first century Corinth, if you wanted a filet mignon or a nice marbled ribeye or even just some ground beef or Taco Tuesday at home, the place to go was your local pagan religious sacrificial butchery, okay? I mean, think about it. If your religious practices include cutting up animals and burning them to the gods in order to curry their favor, the amount of meats that would be at your disposal would be very large indeed. But in order to understand the dynamics of 1 Corinthians 8, our minds need to expand, kind of both architecturally and socially, about what these pagan temples were in the fabric of first century Greco-Roman society. We have to understand the temples as more like central social civic centers. For our day and age, imagine the kind of place that might exist if Cathedral Church of the Advent, Bryant-Denny Stadium, Nikki's West, and The Club had a baby. And then you'd have the idea of how these temples function. The kinds of things that go on in those places, the partying, the eating, the formal gatherings, the worship, the social networking, would have all gone on around the temple. In fact, archaeology tells us that one such temple complex in Corinth uh, exists to the Greek god Asclepius, and not only did it have an area designated for cultic animal sacrifice, you know, what you think a temple would be, but it had several dining rooms that opens to a nicely manicured public courtyard. One historian shares, the wealthier Corinthians would have been invited to meals in such places as a regular part of their social life to celebrate birthdays and weddings, healings attributed to the god, or on other important occasions. For those few Corinthian Christians who were among the wealthier class, their public professional duties virtually required the networking that occurred through attending and sponsoring such events. To eat the sacrificial meat served on such occasions was a simple social courtesy. To refuse to share in the meal would have been an affront to the host. And you can actually see a little bit of the parallels to sort of high southern culture in the way this stuff works socially for your business and for your pleasure together, right? So that's a bit of the lay of the land. But what was going on, actually, that prompted Paul's words to the Corinthians here in chapter 8? You know, we can read between the lines, but it appears that we can read actual lines of the original letter of the Corinthians to Paul, which prompted this epistle. It seems that Paul was quoting them back to themselves, kind of like the way you and I might answer an email 
by quoting what was in the email, copying and pasting it, and then responding to it there. Evidently, it was getting back to Paul that some Corinthian Christians, perhaps those who were newly converted out of paganism and into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, were witnessing other Corinthian Christians who were still socializing in the pagan temples and eating the food that was prepared in those temples, particularly the meats that came from the pagan sacrifices. The first group of Christians Paul calls the weak of conscience, not as a slight, but more as a way of describing the kind of tender and fragile state of their new faith. Paul's pastoral concern for these weak brothers and sisters was that they might get sucked back into the magnetic social fabric of the temple and all its events if and as they witnessed their other brothers and sisters either associating and eating the temple meats in these places or even serving up this food in their home. Paul says that the Corinthians should heed the fact that their social connections and temple meat eating would put a stumbling block in front of these weaker brothers and sisters. Now, we actually need a bit of a time out here to briefly address how this stumbling block principle has been wrongly used to aid and abet a kind of legalistic Christianity, which is actually no Christianity at all. Some will use this stumbling block principle to shut down everything that their brothers and sisters are doing. Often the language gets used, you're offending me, as another way of saying, because you drink alcohol, you're causing others, maybe me, to stumble, or you shouldn't go to that place because it might, might make someone stumble. You know, this is a distortion, and this distorted stumbling block principle has, in some traditions, become a kind of bludgeon to guilt people into behavior modification. And often, it's given with the catchphrase, we don't want to offend anyone. But if we examine the text closely here, we see that people being offended actually wasn't the issue at play. Paul's concern was more drastic and more grave. Verse 11 doesn't say that Paul is concerned about the weak person being offended. He's concerned about the weak person being destroyed. Paul's pastoral concern is that by these practices, the weaker Christians might be led away from faith in Jesus. It had nothing to do with behavior modification and everything to do with building up and fortifying the faith of new disciples. Now notice that I've been saying that this is Paul's pastoral concern. It's his concern as a pastor. Eating food sacrificed to idols actually isn't a theological concern. He makes clear in verses 4 through 6 what the scriptures uphold. The actual state of affairs in the world at any time and place and for every culture and human being is monotheism. There is one God unrivaled. There aren't many gods. So that means that all this food sacrifice to idols and God's business is nothing more than just imaginative pretend play. Meat barbecued to a false and fake God is still, at the end of the day, just meat. And Paul agrees with the strong Christians and the strong Corinthians that because Jesus is the one true and living God, all this stuff is his. And there is total freedom to eat the provisions of the creation of this one true God. And Paul says, the strong Christians are right. 
But here's the crux of the matter. And here's where it starts driving home for us. Paul is saying to these Corinthians, and God is saying to us, you can be right about something and still totally wrong. You can be right about something and still totally wrong. In other words, your theology is right, your beliefs are correct, but when you wield truth around like a bat, you just might end up bashing in the heads of your brothers and sisters, and that's wrong. This is what Paul means when, probably with a little sarcasm, he says in verse 1, as a kind of preamble to his lesson here, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know, to quote you Corinthians, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is saying that love sits over knowledge and truth, not to negate it, but to govern it. This, on the one hand, challenges versions of Christianity that say, all we need to do is love each other, all grace, only grace, full acceptance, ever and always. No, 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 Paul says. It's not that love negates truth. It's, that, it's not that love makes truth irrelevant. It's that love governs truth and governs the way we teach it and the way we apply it and the way we live it. And, on the other hand, it challenges versions of Christianity that insist on truth at any cost, who foolishly think that if we just simply impose the law of God on people, they'll actually change. Or if I just forcefully tell you the truth hard enough, you'll believe it, submit to it, and change your life. And God knows as a parent, I know that that doesn't work. You see, neither all you need is love license, nor all you need is truth, legalism, is Christianity. You need both. And you need both in a certain order of priority. Love governs truth. Which is why God can say to us, you can be right and still totally wrong. And you know, Paul is going to return to this theme in chapter 13. But here's the really powerful part about this. Here's the part that excited me to preach this passage today. Underneath what Paul is saying that I hinted at earlier is a kind of subterranean structure upholding his admonitions here. The structure is what he's been building and appealing to throughout his epistle. We could call it the logic of the gospel. Underneath Paul's encouragement to the so-called stronger Christians is a gospel logic that in truth, you have the freedom in Christ to eat whatever you want. But true Christian freedom is actually the freedom to give yourself away, to sacrifice yourself for the sake of your sister or your brother. There is no one better, in my opinion, who articulates gospel logic like this than Martin Luther. In his 1521 treatise entitled the freedom of a Christian, which is something I keep going back to, and it's so beautiful and so powerful. He says this, a Christian ought to think, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure free mercy, so that from now on, I need nothing except faith 
which believes this is true, which is, uh, why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will do all things which I know are pleasing to such a father who has overwhelmed me with such inestimable riches? I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see necessary, profitable, and salutary for my neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Therefore, everyone should put on his neighbor and so conduct himself toward him as if he himself were in the other's place. We conclude then that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, and he lives in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God, and by love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. That's beautiful. In other words, the logic of the gospel is this. Because I've been given all I really need in Christ, I'm free to give myself away. I can let go of my rights, and I can lay down my privilege. This is the freedom that the gospel purchases. This is real freedom. You see, our culture thinks that freedom is being able to live however you want. But the freedom that the gospel purchases, which is a true, deep, and more powerful freedom, because that first freedom that I just mentioned is actually bondage. This is a freedom from having to live for yourself and live to yourself. This is the logic which Paul is employing here when he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. That's freedom. You want to know which disciples in our church exhibit this gospel freedom the best? Children. Children do. They get this. This is probably why we should pay more attention to them and learn from them and maybe why we should be okay with their screams and noise in our worship services. You know, several Christmases ago, I received a gift of inestimable value in my stocking from my youngest son, Brody. After pulling out the obligatory stocking stuffers, candy and knickknacks and whatnot, at the bottom of my stocking were two crumpled dollar bills. As I unfolded them, wondering where they came from, Brody blurted out something like, For you, Daddy, I love you. Now, this might not seem like much, but it was. In fact, I almost started crying. You see, I knew something about Brody. The kid only had $2 to his name. And that Christmas morning, he gave me 100% of his combined net worth. I said to Brody, kind of dumbfounded, buddy, you don't have any money now. Why'd you do that? His simple and powerful and gospel logic style answer was, I didn't need it. What was Brody saying just then? He was saying, Dad, I know you. You and Mom give me everything I need. You always have and you always will. So I don't really need to hold on to anything because I know that I have your full provision always pouring into me. I'm kind of free just to give it all away. Brothers and sisters, this Easter tide, hear this freeing word 
because of who Jesus is and what he's done, because he died on the cross for your sins, and because he rose for your justification, because he did all these things, because you are in Christ, O believer, God gives you all the inheritance that belongs to his son. It's what we call the means of grace and the hope of glory, eternal life, the hope of heaven, and a peace now that passeth all understanding. Because of all those things, you and I are richly abundant in Christ, even whether we feel like it or not. It's just given to us. You have all you need. You're free. So, brothers and sisters, go now and enjoy that freedom. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.